we're in Romans. We're in the fourth chapter. So I am going to beg your indulgence while I back up a little bit and give some overview so that the people that are watching this video for the first time understand where I'm coming from and understanding what my background is and what the background is here in Romans. As I said, I have no idea why Paul wrote Romans. I've been listening to Ron Dart. Coincidence is not a kosher word. Ron Dart is exactly the same place in Romans as I am. He's a great teacher. Unfortunately, he's gone to be with the Lord, but he is a great teacher. And his take on Romans is pretty much the same as mine, or mine is the same as his, depending on which way you look at it. In the New Testament, there's a couple of franchises. Paul has got the Gentile franchise. So Paul certainly always goes to the synagogue first, but he winds up planting churches among the Gentiles. And his letters are written to Gentiles, which means that he doesn't assume that they understand a couple thousand years of Jewish culture with the Torah. So he sort of got to start them from scratch. Peter, on the other hand, has got the Jewish franchise. So Peter's letters assume that his audience has a cultural background in Torah. And so he says things to people who know Torah. Paul says things to people who don't know Torah. That, that's very general and very broad, but it's pretty much correct. So from our perspective, the problem with Paul is he is talking about Hebrew subjects using the Greek language and he's talking to people with a Greek or Roman mindset as opposed to Peter he's still writing in Greek because that's the sort of the language of commerce if you will but he's talking to people who have a Hebrew mindset and understand what he's talking about so the, the two are coming at this from a different perspective it was interesting I was listening to Ron Dart when he was reading in Romans 1 and you have that passage where he says, all oh, you sinners, and he goes into the list of things as he tears a stripe off of them in the last part of one. And Ron Dart's comment was, I have no idea what set Paul off, which is Ron Dart's way of saying what I said. I have no idea why he's writing this letter. Corinthians or Galatians, for example, he's writing to a church that he's been to before, that is having problems and he's writing a pastoral letter into that situation to correct problems and misunderstandings in the church. And we sometimes have problems with those because we're reading somebody else's mail. So we don't have complete access to both sides of the conversation, so a lot of it we just got to infer. In the case of Romans, he's not writing to some place he's been before. And as I say, I don't know what moved him to write it, other than to say, I want to come see you. And certainly that's a good reason to write a letter. That's one of the first things he says, is I, want, I do want to come see you. And that's a good thing. But I have no idea what launched him off in Romans 1, where he's spitting fire and brimstone at him. I do not know. The other problem we have with Paul is he's writing in Greek, and he's talking about Hebrew concepts. And in Hebrew, it's a much more precise language when it talks about God. Hebrew is the language that you want to be using when you're talking about God. Greek is the language you want to be using if you need to send a rocket to the moon. Greek is an excellent technical language. 
That's what it's designed for. And if you read Greek philosophy and that kind of stuff, they're talking about observations, physical observations, philosophical stuff, but it's all in a naturalistic context. Greek is just a wonderful language for doing that. Hebrew is the best language for talking about God. So when you are writing in one language and you're talking about concepts in another, it sometimes gets a bit confused. And that's especially the case when he talks about law. Sometimes when he talks about law, he's talking about Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the ones that Moses wrote. Sometimes when he talks about law, he's talking about natural law, as in laws of physics, law of gravity, those kinds of things. Sometimes that's what he means. Sometimes when he's talking about law, he's talking about what we would call proverbs. In other words, it's a law that you sow what you reap, but, you know, those kinds of things, you know, human wisdom, if you will. And that's often talked of in terms of law in here. So as we read through this, what we have trouble with is figuring out what sense he means when he says law. And you sometimes have to unpack that based on context, and you have to figure out what it is he's actually saying. And that's not always easy. And the problem with much of Christianity is they are Gentiles, which means that they come with a Roman or Greek mindset. And when you say law to someone with that mindset, law is something that must be obeyed. Or there's going to be penalties. It is a law that you stop at a stop sign. If you don't stop at the stop sign, then... You're in violation of the law, and some authority will jerk you up short. The mindset of a Greek or a Roman is when you talk about something being a law, they regard a law as something that is put in place by an authority that is to be obeyed. And if you don't obey it and you get caught not obeying it, there's going to be consequences. That's not what Torah is. What Torah is, of course, is teaching and instruction. What Torah is, is God's instruction to his people that tells them this is how the natural world works. In other words, if you steal somebody's sheep, chances are whoever you stole it from, if he catches you, is going to be really upset. So don't steal sheep. It isn't that God is up there watching you to see if you stole a sheep. What God is telling you by these principles and laws and teachings in the Torah is that's how the natural world works. If you sleep with somebody else's wife, that guy is very unlikely to forgive you and you're liable to get killed. That's teaching and instruction. So having said that, what Paul is now doing is talking about justification by faith. And the point here is, and we'll get into this as we read the text, God understands that none of us is capable of obeying all the natural laws perfectly. Natural laws being Torah laws. He understands we're going to make mistakes. He understands and he loves us and he is going to forgive us and he is going to take us into his kingdom despite the fact that he knows that we periodically violate the teaching and instructions that he gave us in Torah. 
So what we're going to go through now when we talk about Abraham being justified by faith, understand that he is talking to Gentiles who have an understanding of the law that is what I have just mentioned to you. These examples that he's going to use about Abraham and so forth are designed to clarify the points that I just made. So, Romans 4 now. What then shall we say is gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has found something to boast about, but not before God. So the first question is, if you were able to keep the law perfectly, would you then be satisfactory, satisfying to God, and would you have earned salvation? The answer to that is absolutely not. The fact that you are well behaved isn't what earns you salvation. What earns you salvation is that you have a relationship with God. So once you have that relationship with God, then God is able to forgive the fact that you periodically mess up and don't do what you ought to do. But if you don't have a relationship with God, the fact that you are really well behaved is nice. You know, if you never stole a truck, you wouldn't go to jail. I mean, that, I mean there's certainly benefits for being well behaved, but it doesn't cut any ice with God. In other words, the idea that if I behave perfectly, God owes me something is simply wrong. It isn't true. He doesn't owe you anything. He is willing to come into relationship with you and as a gift then, because you have that relationship with him, parent to child, he's willing to overlook mistakes, he's willing to let you grow, he's willing to do all sorts of things for you in that context. But the fact that you're well behaved doesn't earn you anything. So verse 2 again, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. In other words, certainly if he were able to do things perfectly, he could stand in some sort of pride and say, wow, look at how good I am, and he would have a reason for pride. But that doesn't cut any ice with God, is what he's saying. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. In verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So what he's saying there is not that blessed is the man who never sins. What he's saying is blessed is the man against whom God does not count his sins. So the idea is this is not a man without sin. This is a man in relationship to God. And because he has a relationship to God, God does not count his sins against him. You've all read the stories of David, and David has committed sins that I haven't committed. Don't get me wrong, I've committed my own sin. But David was adultery with Bathsheba and then having her husband murdered. I mean, that's pretty serious. So the idea here is if you are a worker and you are counting on being a worker and getting wages, 
Paul is saying, do not count on your wages being salvation. So verse 9, Romans 4, 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? And remember we talked last time that you have all of these Gentiles coming into the church and there was a party of Jews who were Messianic Jews. They were believers in Yeshua, spoke in tongues and walked on water and did all that stuff. They were full-blown believers in Yeshua. They were also of the political opinion that in order for a Gentile to come in, a Gentile had to be turned into a Jew, which means he had to be circumcised, and they had a process for turning a Gentile into a Jew. They were called proselytes, and in order for a Gentile to be saved and be in the kingdom of God, he had to become a Jew. That was their opinion. The Council of Jerusalem said no, that is not the case. They don't have to become Jews in order to be saved. In other words, God has chosen himself who will be saved, and we will not set upon them any other burdens. So what Paul is saying here is, okay, Abraham was our father. He's the father of the Jewish people. He was circumcised. So does that mean in order to come into the kingdom, you've got to be circumcised? That's the question he's asking. Verse 10, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. And if you remember in Genesis, I believe chapter 15, where this business of being accounted for righteousness as a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham, after Abraham had been justified by faith, God says, now, take a little off the top. So the fact is that God accepted Abraham before he was a circumcised man. The circumcision was simply a sign of that acceptance. It was not a precondition for that acceptance, and that's what Paul is saying here. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. So the idea there is, according to Paul, the reason, I mean, God I'm sure has other reasons, but at least according to Paul, the reason that God did it in that sequence, accounted it to him for righteousness first, and then had him circumcised second, was so that that example would be available forever. This is how God does things. And you do not have to be circumcised first in order to come into relationship with God. So I'm going to pick it up at 11 and a half, which is a sentence in mine. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Notice that he is the physical father of the circumcised. But what it's saying is he is the physical father of those who are not merely circumcised, which happens to a Jewish little boy on the eighth day, whether he asks for it or not. 
not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that Abraham walked in. So physical circumcision is not the thing that justifies Hebrews. It is a sign of the covenant between them and God. But in order for them to be justified, they have to walk in the path that Abraham walked in. Verse 13, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. That's what I said earlier on, that the deal with Abraham is that he was in a relationship with God, and that's the thing that made God make the promise to him and make the covenant with him. And that relationship, then, is the basis on which his offspring are going to inherit the earth. And by the way, according to Paul here, his offspring are both Jews and Gentiles. Because remember, God in, I believe, Genesis 15, says to Abraham, I will make you the father of nations. So the deal there is nations, not of a nation. So he is the father of a nation biologically and physically, those are the Hebrews, he is also the father of nations, those who believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and walk in faith as he did. So Romans 4.13, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law or to be the heirs, Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. So the idea of the law bringing wrath. Go back to the riff that I started this whole thing with. The law is how God has morally set up his universe. It talks about human nature. And again, human nature is if you steal somebody's sheep, he's going to come after you. Human nature is, if you steal somebody's wife, he's going to come after you. Human nature is, if you badmouth somebody, you're going to destroy the community. So what the law, Torah, is, is explaining to you how his universe works from a human and moral standpoint. That's separate from the law of gravity or the law of the speed of light or any of those other things, which are also binding. So what he's done is he's told you that, and when the law brings wrath, what he's talking about is it's the law of the jungle, if you will. If you do this, this is what's going to happen to you, this is what's going to happen to your family, this is what's going to happen to your nation. As a consequence of violating that law, not necessarily because God is ticked with you, I mean, he does get ticked with Israel, don't get me wrong. But he gets ticked with Israel because they fall away from his covenant. That's different than getting ticked with Israel because they don't follow the law perfectly. One is a personal betrayal where he calls them an unfaithful wife, and that's a personal betrayal as opposed to you didn't do this or you didn't do that or you did the other thing. Those are sort of two different categories of problems that God has with Israel. And the problem is that as you fall away from his Torah and you quit doing the things that his Torah requires, you eventually descend into idolatry and violence and injustice and all of those kinds of things, which then results in you breaking the covenant. 
In other words, there's a progression and a path, if you will. It starts off fairly innocent, but it winds up in idolatry and murder. And what God is saying is, my Torah is to keep you out of that spiral. So, verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. And the idea, as I've been saying over and over again, is the relationship that Abraham had with God and his willingness to walk before God in faith and trust caused God to make a covenant with him and that covenant is as we see and it's not the fact that he was just really a good guy although he was a good guy but there are some things in his life that I don't think were especially salutary for example his leaving Sarah to the mercies of Pharaoh or Abimelech I don't think that was particularly salutary. Similarly, the way he treated Hagar and Ishmael, I don't think that was particularly salutary. So Abraham was not perfect, but he was a man who followed God as best he could and did what God wanted him to do as best he could, which is the basis of the covenant. Verse 19, he, Abraham, did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So the idea here obviously is when it says, he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, this is what he believed God with respect to. He believed that when God says, you're going to be the father of nations, he believed that somehow God was going to make that happen, even though in the natural, it appeared to him that it was impossible. 22. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Yeshua our Lord, who was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. So what Paul is saying here is Abraham believed that God was able to, air quotes here, raise him and Sarah from the dead because in the natural they were far past childbearing age. So Abraham believed that God was able to raise him and Sarah from the dead in that sense. And we get the same benefit by believing that God raised his son Yeshua from the dead. That's what Paul's argument is.